everyone, you're listening to the TechFest podcast and I'm Raga and we're back with a new diabetes episode with John today. For all the science lovers and curious minds, hello John. Hi everybody. Hi, so how are you? I'm very good, thank you very much. How are you? I'm great. John, would you like to give a bit more intro about yourself to our listeners? Sure, yeah. So so I'm um, John Barrow and I'm a, a senior lecturer at the University of Aberdeen um, where I, I teach uh, quite a lot these days actually rather than doing too much lab research um, but uh, my teaching is largely focused on biochemistry and molecular biology so so really understanding how all of the small molecules and bits and pieces in our cells function um, and uh, and my research background is actually in diabetes and understanding how um, the various genes that control pancreas development are actually regulated and then maybe, you know, what implications that might have uh, in terms of treatments for, for the condition. Great. So let's get started with the questions. What processes gun the pancreas development? In terms of the, the pancreas and, and how it develops, it starts off in the early embryo um, as just a, a simple gut tube. So um, so as the, the embryo develops, there is a, a very, literally a very simple tube that runs from the, the top to the bottom of the, the embryo. Um, and in the early stages of pancreas development, there's various signals and um, uh, things like growth factors that regulate what that gut tube is going to become. So obviously there's other things that, other than the pancreas that form parts of your digestive system. So all of those things also come from this gut tube, um, or most of them do. Um, in terms of the pancreas, though, there's a, a set of signals that tell um, a region of cells within the gut to become the pancreas. So, so often in the early stages, that's growth factors, things like uh, retinoic acid and other kind of chemical signals. And then later on when that process starts to happen um, what you get is from if you can imagine this tube expanding out in two directions almost like a kind of tree um, and branching um, ever more uh, more and more branches that that form all of the other cells of the pancreas so um, in your pancreas you have largely digestive enzymes that are produced by what's called the, the exocrine pancreas so that's the majority of the pancreas actually about 95, 98% of it or so is that. Talking about pancreatic enzymes, isn't um, pepsin a part of it, as far as I remember from, from my biology lessons? So that's right, yeah. The um, Pepsin is part of digestion, uh, but pepsin's actually uh, an enzyme that's found in your stomach. It's not um, It's not made in the pancreas, so it, it works just in the stomach. Um, pancreatic enzymes are, are something else. Mm-hmm. The bit I'm interested in is called the endocrine pancreas. Um, and that forms, you know, just a few percent actually of the whole uh, organ, and um, and that's the islets of Langerhans. So they're little clusters of cells um, that contain different cell types. But the one that's really important for diabetes is actually uh, the beta cell, as it's called, and um, and that's the one that makes insulin, which is really important in um, in diabetes and regulating blood sugar. So. Um, so that process of getting from that gut tube to all of these different cells, be them the exocrine cells that make digestive enzymes, the ducts that carry those digestive enzymes, or the islets of Langerhans cells, um, all of that is controlled by um, a series of transcription factors, which are proteins that regulate particular genes. Mm-hmm. And those genes are then what dictate what that cell is going to become. So it's almost like a series of checkpoints that you go through. 
from a, an embryonic up to cell at, at the first start stages and then all the way through to lots and lots of different cell types later on in development. Mm-hmm. So pancreas has different enzymes and part of these enzymes is insulin, which plays a big part in, in diabetes. So that's how we can get started with, is it? Yeah, that's right. So I think the yeah, so the so the the enzymes digest your food, but then the the, the endocrine part of your pancreas, these islets of Langerhans make um is it's not enzymes, but it's actually hormones that regulate various processes in our in our bodies, insulin being one of them. So can you tell our listeners a bit more about the area you've been involved in, in research about diabetes? Sure, yeah. So um, so really, I mean, there's a few different aspects to uh, to the research that I've done in, in the area of diabetes, but um, probably the main one was actually trying to understand some of the processes that regulate how um, the islets of Langerhans develop um, and focused actually on one particular gene which um, has a, a bit of a strange name for a gene that's found in the pancreas but it's called neurogenin 3. Oh, sounds like a brain one. It, it does because it's also it's also um, produced in the in, in the nervous tissue as well so actually um, weirdly it's expressed in the in the brain and also um, in uh, the pancreas as well but it's a really key gene for regulating uh, the endocrine parts so of the bit that becomes these islets of Langerhans, these little clusters of cells. Yeah. And the reason for looking at this and understanding how this gene may regulate other parts of that developmental process is to really ultimately try and find a cell replacement therapy for diabetic patients. So if you're going to go and put cells into somebody that are going to be replacing these beta cells that in a diabetic patient don't maybe work very well or are non-existent, then you want to make sure those cells are as close to a beta cell as you possibly can make them. And one way is to understand the natural process of development um, and then try and mimic that maybe in things like stem cells, for example. Okay, so you take um, beta cells uh, from an embryo. Is it is that stem cells research or something? Um, yeah, so it wouldn't be the beta cells, but what it what it is 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 taking stem cells and trying to um, to cajole them to make them turn into uh, something that looks like a beta cell, functions like a beta cell, or actually um, perhaps functions like an entire islet of Langerhans. These clusters of cells, so that they um, they can be then uh, put into uh, into patients. That sounds great, but I feel like you've answered our second question as well. But what is cell replacement therapy and uh, curing diabetes? But how is it linked to um, gene regulatory processes? The purpose of looking at the gene regulatory processes is is that, as I say, that well, stem cells by their very nature are cells that can become lots and lots of different tissues and different cell types um, because that you know, particularly embryonic stem cells. So um, so if you're trying to get one of these cells to turn into what is effectively an adult cell that has one particular function rather than lots and lots of different functions, um, what you want is you want it to actually stop being a stem cell and become the adult cell that you're after, whatever that may be in this case talking about beta cells or islets. So, so the last thing you want is for it to retain some of that stem cell-like property because stem cells are very good at dividing very very quickly um, and also turning into lots of different cell types so they um, what you find is actually that and this has been done in in various animal studies if you put these cells into um, 
into animals to try and sort of effectively cure in inverted commas their diabetes then what will happen is that often those cells will will do that they will actually be able to mm-hmm. prevent these these animals from having so it's usually in mice so prevent them from having um, diabetes anymore however the downside is that the, the, the stem cells within that mixture of cells um, will often go on and form tumors and cancer in these individuals so the last thing you would want as a treatment is obviously to be injected in cells that may well turn into tumors so a lot of that is because these cells are unable to to lose that stem cell property of being able to divide very very rapidly um, and therefore that's the last thing you want if you're trying to make a treatment and nobody's managed to crack that yet so um so the the prize is still there i would say no thank you i hope i'm pronouncing all these genes right um <laughs> quite a complicated name so the genes hexokinase 2 um p85 alpha p13k and srebp1c what is their significance and do they have similar functions that's a good question um and you did pronounce them correctly by the way thank you <laughs> they're not always the easiest things to pronounce um so hexokinase 2 is, uh, I'll do them in, in the order that you kind of, that, that you mentioned them. Um, so hexokinase 2 is, a, is an enzyme. So it's a, a protein that carries out a, a reaction in, in our cells. And its, its basic function is to phosphorylate glucose. And what I mean by that is it, glucose goes into our cells and phosphate, a particular chemical group, is effectively attached to that glucose molecule. And it's actually the first step in a, a 10-step process called glycolysis, which which is actually the first step in beginning to break down glucose in our cells. Respiration. Yeah, exactly, and respiration to yield the energy from from that glucose. So um, so that's its function fundamentally, um, and it's in most of the, the tissues of the body actually as well. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of all over the place. It's not in one particular organ. Yeah. And and in diabetes, usually um, hexokinase 2 is, is not degraded quite as quickly as it would be normally. So it kind of hangs around in the cell a bit longer. And that's kind of made worse because in diabetic individuals, they're hyperglycemic. So they have high levels of glucose already. So um, so the, there's really um, large amounts of glucose in the system. It's converted through uh, the process of the reaction to glucose uh, 6-phosphate. Um, but actually, the, the process of glycolysis, this respiration process, as you mentioned, is actually kind of overloaded by the fact that uh, hexokinase 2 is kind of in, in abundance, if you like, in the cell. Um, so there's too many of all the intermediate molecules in that 10-step process of glycolysis. Mm-hmm. Um, and what that does, it has a knock-on effect of having lots of different problems in the cell. So um, starts to trigger particular cellular stress responses um, and also starts to muck up how the mitochondria that are in cells um, function. So, so you start to get mitochondria malfunction and not, func- and not working properly. Um, so instead of glucose being used to yield energy from it, what it's doing is kind of mucking up the processes in the, in the cell, really. Um, because there's larger amounts of this hexokinase 2 enzyme present. Yeah. So ultimately, that, that means that the cells uh, begin to deregulate themselves effectively. Would more hexokinase 2 mean less glucose is broken down? No. So it, what it, what it, it's a process called uh, glycolytic overload. So it, it overloads this glycolysis or respiration process. Um and it's made worse because, as I say, in diabetic individuals, they will have 
high levels of glucose anyway. Um, so not only do you have a kind of overactive respiration process because you have more of this hexokinase 2 enzyme present, but equally there's more glucose present, so the whole system becomes overloaded. And the, the knock-on effect is that uh, things are kind of knocked out of kilter, really. And, and as you as you probably know, kind of homeostasis is is the key thing, really, for, for biology. And this is a good example of where it really gets thrown Mm-hmm. And uh, and you end up with lots of cellular damage and cellular processes going awry. So that's the first one. So P eighty five alpha P I three K, or we'll, we'll call it P I three K for short, shall we? Um, so that's uh, phosphatidyl inositol three kinase is what that stands for, but we'll definitely call it P I three kinase. So that's another enzyme, um, and that phosphorylates other proteins in the cell. Uh, one of which is is the insulin receptor. Mm-hmm. So, uh, oh, sorry, it's part of a process that the insulin receptor is involved in. It doesn't directly phosphorylate the insulin receptor. And if it's in beta cells where the insulin is acting, so the insulin's binding to the receptor and then triggering a cellular response, mm-hmm. then that could be for releasing more insulin from the beta cell. Um, if it's in other cells of the body, then um, what tends to happen when insulin binds to the insulin receptor is that you will have glucose transporters that are, or glucose channels that are, um, pushed out to the cell surface to allow those cells to take up glucose. So often insulin is described as kind of, you know, it's the, it's the key to open the lock to allow the, the glucose into our cells. What's actually happening is that there's a whole raft of different cellular processes that present lots and lots of um, glucose channels to the cell surface. And once they're on the cell surface, the glucose can get in. So um, so they're the processes that that, that PI3 kinase is um, is involved with mm-hmm. and if it's in a diabetic individual often there's mutations in that uh, gene which causes mutations in the protein um, and you get particular problems with with this insulin signaling process so it starts to kind of deregulate the insulin signaling process um, so normally in the liver the liver is kind of the, the hub of all the metabolic processes that happen in your body really mm-hmm. so in the liver uh, the effects of insulin are usually to pre- um, prevent glucose being produced. Um, so it, it knocks out the process called gluconeogenesis. It reduces that process of making glucose from other molecules. Um, and you increase production of, of fatty acids or, or fat molecules from um, non-fat molecules like glucose, for example. Um, so that's a process called lipogenesis. So insulin normally does that. And um, when you have elevated levels of sugar, then both of those processes are activated. Um, if this PI3 kinase enzyme is disrupted, though, mm-hmm. the liver starts to make too much glucose um, because it's not being knocked down um, anymore. It's not being reduced. Um, and um, as it's making too much glucose, that is effectively being pushed out into the bloodstream. So you end up with even higher levels of blood glucose, actually. Um, and it's kind of seen as a, a bit of a precursor to, to type 2 diabetes, which is the, the form of diabetes where um, it's not that you don't make insulin, it's just that the insulin you do make becomes kind of ineffective. It's a process called insulin resistance. So kind of another way of putting it is the insulin's kind of got a limited action upon the cells that it should act upon because it can't carry out its its normal function. So does the P85 um, alpha I3K only have an effect if, example, a, a person has type 2 diabetes 
And then further, he asked the gene, P85, P1, uh, PI3K, would it just be more serious in that case? It can be linked, but as with most conditions, it's usually not just necessarily one thing um, that would be causing this. So the so there are mutations in PI3 kinase that, that are um, linked to, to type 2 diabetes. Um, so, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then the final one was um, SREBP1C, yeah? Yeah. Which is uh, sterile regulatory element binding transcription factor one. So that's, a as, it, as the name suggests, it's a transcription factor. And they're, they're, as I mentioned earlier, they're kind of proteins that, they bind to DNA and they regulate particular genes. So this isn't an enzyme like the like the other two. Yeah. What it does is it regulates a whole range of different genes that are uh, linked to to how cells utilize glucose um, and also uh, fatty acid synthesis. So it links a little bit to some of the stuff I said previously that um, you know so glucose and fatty acid. In fact, most of energy metabolism, most metabolic processes, can be deemed as malfunction in in, in diabetes um, in certain instances. So this is a transcription factor that regulates this range of genes that are linked to uh, to glucose, um, as I say, usage and fatty acid synthesis. Mm-hmm. And there's actually been reasonably recent studies done um, on, well, it's diabetic individuals that are in mice, so not in, not in humans, but um, that the, the process of um, if, if they're obese or diabetic, so that there's metabolic stress that they're put under, um, and this is the same in, in humans as well, um, that can can trigger this gene, so this SREBP1C gene, to, to be activated. Um, and normally what would happen is that in individuals where this is functioning properly, um, you end up with an increase actually in um, in insulin secretion and you end up also with an increase in, in beta cell proliferation so you end up with more beta cells in, in those individuals mm-hmm. um, and in the early stages of pre-diabetes if you like that that tends to happen quite well the problem comes when that stops happening um, and you're not able to increase insulin secretion enough to actually have an effect so so under normal conditions this gene is involved in transcription factors involved in regulating some of these processes in individuals where that gene is not functioning quite so well you don't get that process so you get a kind of you don't really get as much of a a kind of compensation if you like um for the effects of the the metabolic stress caused by obesity and, and diabetes so um so that's how it kind of ties in with how diabetes can form. So if, if there are individuals, again, a bit like the, the last protein, if they've got mutations in that protein, it maybe doesn't quite carry out the function as well as it should do. Great. Um, I just wanted to ask, do you know how you said um, if the gene was malfunctioned or was, was not present, then there would be more beta cells proteliated? I thought beta cells produced a lot of insulin. Wouldn't that mean that it has to, like work more better or does it not work because type 2 diabetes is not about like the amount of insulin it's just about the cells not taking insulin so in in obese individuals and and diabetic individuals or sometimes both um then uh what you have is effectively um is is metabolic stress because you have highly elevated levels of of um of blood glucose usually Mm mm-hmm amongst other things so um so what tends to happen in response to that is that the pancreas is is kind of triggered and signaled to create more beta cell mass if you like so more beta cells and therefore make more insulin in response to that elevated 
blood glucose level. Um, so this isn't normal conditions per se, it's, but it's, it's normal in that it, the beta cells are compensating um, for this metabolic stress the body is under. Whereas when this gene doesn't work properly, that doesn't happen. Um, so in other words, the, the blood sugar remains even more elevated than it would be otherwise as well. Uh, makes much more sense. Thank you. And uh, moving on to the next question, what is the current research being done on diabetes? So that's a, that's a very broad question, um, which I quite like, actually. I, I think there's, um, so the, for, for me personally, um, I, I would say uh, there's probably three main areas. Um, so there's cell replacement therapies that I kind of touched upon earlier. Yeah. Particular ways of injecting or types of insulin um, and, and immunomodulation. So that, you know, from a cell replacement therapy point of view, um, there's... So I mentioned stem cells previously, but actually other ways of looking at that is rather than using stem cells to use um, something called IPS cells or induced pluripotent stem cells. So they're actually cells usually, well, in theory, they would be from the individual yeah. who has diabetes and, and then therefore um, you're not taking them from somebody else. So therefore, if you transplant them back into that person, they don't need to have immunosuppression which is what they would have to have mm -hmm. if they had if they had an islet transplant let's say which would come from other individuals um, and to have the drugs that kind of suppress your immune system firstly you don't have a very good immune system which isn't great but also the, the drugs have quite severe side effects so if we could use ips cells instead of, of embryonic stem cells or indeed you know other sources of islets like islet transplants then mm -hmm. it gets around all of that and then linked to that as well is actually even if we did use stem cells from other sources let's say and try to convert them into our beta cells or, or islets or langerhans is to try and encapsulate them in some way um so so there's actually there's a company called Viasite who are who are at the later stages actually of, of trialing this so so you have what what in effect looks like a um, like almost like a wound dressing, you know, so it's this small patch and in, inside that is where all of the cells are. Mm -hmm. And you can put that under the skin of a patient. Um, it can function as almost a kind of large cluster of cells. And then if something goes awry, you can take it out. So the, the nice thing about that is it's kind of a mixture of, you know, the, the cell biology bit, but equally kind of more techie side of things as well in terms of how you would encapsulate these things uh -huh. probably linked to the techie side of stuff as well is, is insulin injections so even though you know as a as a technology if you if you like it's it's very old to kind of inject you know drugs into people but um but using you know insulin pumps that are getting ever smarter and being able to detect constantly your blood glucose level and then release insulin as and when required yeah. And equally, what those insulins are, so that there are um, newer insulins now called glucose responsive insulins or sometimes called smart insulins that, that you can be injected with very high levels of the insulin itself. And it remains inactive until your blood sugar starts to rise and then mm -hmm. it becomes activated um, and it, it activates in response to the level of blood sugar you have. So that combination of those things, I think, could be quite powerful. Um, and then linked actually to the patches and the kind of encapsulation of, of cells, immunomodulation by, by using specific material that those patches are made from mm -hmm. that triggers your immune system, but in the kind of right way, if you like, to promote the correct response from the immune system. So, so there's people looking at materials based on mm -hmm. extracellular matrix, which is the, the proteins that basically hold us all together. 
Um, so they're the proteins that sit between all of your cells um, and looking at, at making materials out of that rather than out of, you know, completely, um, you know, artificial material um, in the hopes that that would be able to trigger a response that there's a good response. It, it triggers kind of, you know, the, the immune system to kind of protect that that patch rather than kind of attack it, if you like. So, yeah, so the, they're the three things for me. I think the, the, the replacement therapy bit, insu- types of insulin and how they're injected and, and immunomodulation. But I I think the, the really cool thing for me, I think, is that that is a, you know, it, it's this really interdisciplinary mix of subjects in a way, because it's not pure biology, but it's equally engineering problems as well. And that is definitely the way, not just this, but the whole of science, I think, is going. Great. The patch device is super cool, though. <laughs> it is, yeah. If you had to invent something to manage diabetes, what would it be? It'd be a patch device that's super cool. <laughs> somebody's already there already but anyway um yeah i i think for me probably that's a tricky one but i think um probably that what i just said actually the kind of this kind of bioengineering and being able to do that in combination with manipulating cells as accurately as possible Mm -hmm. because you know ultimately the, I mean, the amazing thing about any form of multicellular life, actually, in fact, it doesn't matter, it can be single cell life as well, for that matter, um, is the real kind of exquisite control that happens when cells develop. Mm-hmm. And we're just nowhere near that in terms of being able to do that in the lab. So a greater understanding of those processes, I think, to prevent some of the things that I mentioned previously about cells misbehaving um, and linked with actually being able to deliver those cells into a patient without anything happening you know so again i mean these patches you know but it's quite crude in that you're sticking you'd be sticking a patch under your skin you know but um could we do that in a, in a better way so that combination i think of engineering and cell manipulation i think holds the the most promise i would say that's actually super cool um so is insulin a hormone or an enzyme if it's the former how does it break down glycogen Insulin is definitely a hormone. So enzymes, as I mentioned previously, are biological catalysts. So they carry out reactions in our cells. Otherwise, wouldn't happen without them. Uh-huh. So yeah, insulin is a hormone, um, and a hormone by you know contrast is is something that's made. It could be a, a chemical messenger type compound, or it, a chemical compound, or it could be a protein um, like insulin is, but released by one cell that then goes and has some effect somewhere else in the in the body um so insulin you know made by beta cells in the pancreas but when it's released into the bloodstream it has its effect all over the body adrenaline is another example but that's not a protein that's actually a you know an actual chemical compound um, that has an effect all over the body even though it's made in the adrenal glands um so but the but insulin itself it does have a link with glycogen so it actually builds up glycogen not directly the insulin itself doesn't do that but it signals to the cells to activate glycogen formation glycogen is uh, i'm guessing you know already because you've asked me the question but gly- glycogen is um great big huge molecule that's made up of individual glucose molecules so it's this great big branch structure that kind of is is built up when and I, I tend to describe this when I teach this in my classes as kind of when times are good and, and the body's got lots of energy then you don't need the glucose to break down to make energy because you've got plenty of it already so you store it so so the glucose can be stored in glycogen most of it in the liver and in your muscles, in skeletal muscle. Uh-huh. Um, and then if you've not eaten for a while, then 
um, times aren't quite so good. So you start to break down the glycogen. And in the liver, the glycogen is released into the bloodstream to keep your blood sugar up. The glycogen is actually not released at all. It's used up for muscle contraction. Uh So insulin affects the formation of glycogen by by triggering a set of responses in the cell that build up this glycogen molecule. So that's what what happens. So it does have a link to, to glycogen, but it doesn't directly impact glycogen. It sets off a set of processes that that create the glycogen molecule from other enzymes in the cell. So that's that's pretty much it. That was that was such an interesting episode. I enjoyed a lot and that brings us to an end. Thank you so much, John, for being on this episode. No problem at all. Thank you. That's it, guys. That brings us to the end of today's episode. And I hope you enjoyed it a lot and tune in for more episodes from the Tech First podcast. Bye. Bye, everyone.